As you're seated, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We've been going through Matthew chapter 18, and Matthew chapter 18 is a, uh, a family kind of user manual for Jesus's household. So he says, all right, in this house, this is the, the house rules. So Jesus is building his house, and these are the house rules for his house. And in his house, it's going to be marked by sacrificial love. And it's one large sermon that each week we've kind of been chopping up into different uh, parts, but we've already seen, all right, in this house, it's not going to be fueled by a competitive sibling rivalry for greatness. The pathway to greatness is through humble service. And in this house, I'm going to take very seriously how you treat all of the little ones, the least of these, the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. And uh, it, it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and cast yourself in the sea than to cause one of them to stumble. So do not cause offense. And then this part that we've come to is kind of the honest question. Well, now, all right, what do we do when we do cause an offense? Or how do we deal with conflict? You know, how do we learn how to fight right? Because one of the interesting things about this passage is Jesus actually is going to assume that in his house, his family are going to, to fight. And so maybe that alone can be the one thing that can free you up. Maybe you carry an unnecessarily guilt and burden because there's a lot of fighting in your family. Well, there's a lot of fighting in Jesus's family too. Uh, our kids, we're in the current life stage where our kids are uh, obsessed with a show called Bluey. And uh, if you don't know the plot or the theme of Bluey, good for you. But it's a, it's a cartoon about an Australian sheepdog family. And it's a, it's a wonderful little show. But one of the reasons we love Bluey is because it's taught our kids so many unique things. So, for example, like we go out to a restaurant and they ask for like chippies. And uh, they're, they're called fries. No, we want the chippies. And uh, the other day, our four-year-old heard uh, Cynthia and I, we were having a discussion. Uh, but he wasn't quite comfortable with the level of the volume and the energy. And so he starts pulling on my pants leg and he says, Daddy, stop squabbling. <laughs> all right, first of all, we're not squabbling. Second, where did you learn that word? That's a fabulous word. And just assumes that in this family, there's going to be squabbling. So what do you do about it? And what he gives us here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20, is he gives us a roadmap for reconciliation. There's going to be conflict. Don't avoid it. There's going to be conflict, but here's your roadmap for reconciliation. Here's your, here are your protocols for peacemaking. So you are going to need to do re, uh, relational healing, mending, reconciliation. This is how you do it. And one of the important things is it's going to give us a certain perspective about conflict so it changes the way we see conflict. Because some of us see conflict as an opportunity to win and the goal is victory. Others see conflict as something to be avoided at all cost, to avoid. And what he's going to say, tell us is, all right, conflict actually is neither of those things. What this is, is a redemptive opportunity to grow. This is your opportunity to grow, that you will always remain immature. You will always remain insecure. You will always remain incomplete until you learn how to fight right. 
or fight well. So let's read it. There's a couple things I want to notice, and then we're just really going to anchor down on two words. But starting in verse 15, and just listen for the things that are repeated and the images and the order and the structure. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So just look, and a couple things I want you to notice. Did you notice how often the word if comes up? It's kind of if, six different times, if your brother sins against you, if he listens, if he does not listen, if he refuses to listen, if he refuses, if two or three gather. So setting up this context, this is for the if in life, this if that we all know is inevitable. But then did you notice the problem or the context? If your brother, so this is family, you need to think family context, brother, Jesus' family, your family, the family context, if your brother, and then it's really important, what's the offense? If your brother sins against you, it's not if your brother annoys you or if your brother aggravates you or if your brother pesters you, or if your brother doesn't do the things you're expecting them to do, even though you've never told them you're expecting them to do those things. It's if your brother sins against you. It's really important to get those categories. All right, what is, what is the real offense? Jesus has to define those things if they sin against you. And then did you notice, did you hear how often the word listen comes It's really remarkable. It's not, all right, if your brother, um, if they sinned against you, you go and you confront them and then they repent, they change, they turn, they stop. It's if they listen. The problem is they're not actually listening. If they listen, you've won your brother. But if they refuse to listen three different times, refuse, refuse, refuse to listen. So that's the problem. They know two times Jesus says, I say to you, here's what I say. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. This is the second time he said that. And again, I say to you, if you agree on earth about anything, I am there with you. Notice the context of that. We often think of the context of when two or three are gathered to pray, I am there with you. And that's a true and precious thing, but that's not the context here. Why do you think Jesus puts that promise in the context of, of relational discord? In the midst of conflict, if two or three gather, I am there. I will be there with you. All right, now this passage, originally I wanted to walk through the three-step kind of process that he gives us. Step one is you, you go and gain. Step two is you get all of the evidence and other eyes, evidence and eyes. And then step three is you tell it to the church. And this passage is one of an extremely important passage for understanding uh, the what we call the church polity, the order, how you order the church, who's kind of authority, different things like that. It's, it's really important for structural pieces of putting the church together. But what I wanted to just focus on, but the thing that'd be most helpful for us is just really focus in on just that step one. 
the idea, notice the first step. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So step one, in essence, is you go in order to gain. Go to gain. And really, if we could just, in one sense, it sounds so simple, and it really is, but it is not easy. And if we could find a way to internalize that, where that dynamic of going in order to gain becomes the relational dynamic that drives most of your relationships, you will bypass 90% of the relational conflict that is happening in your life and in the world. So what I want to do is just kind of anchor down there and just think, all right, what does it mean to kind of follow step one, where you go to gain? He tells them, go to gain. And when you've been sinned against, it's not sit and sulk. It's not live and let live. It's not stew and then spew. It's not avoid and ignore. It's not even tit for tat. Notice it's go in order to gain. And one of the challenges, just the way we've been going through Matthew, is we've been taking a really long time to go through it all, and it's all interconnected. And sometimes you got to think, all right, how does it fit together? Because this is one of the major themes in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a major theme, the major theme in chapter 12, is how does Jesus deal with confrontation and conflict? And what you see, like in chapter 5, he's already told us that if someone slaps you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. So you don't respond and retaliate. And then, so there's times where no response is proper. But here he's telling if somebody sins against you, you, you go to them and you confront them. So when do we ignore? When do we confront? And then he tells us in chapter 5 that if you have sinned against your brother, you go to them. And here he tells us if they've sinned against you, you go to them. So like, wait a second. It means we're always the ones doing the going. It doesn't actually matter who started it. We're the ones on the move. So the thing about go and gain. And really what these two things give us is they give us the movement for conflict. We're to go, enter in, movement, and then motivation is to, to win the relationship, to gain them. Like I said, if we can kind of internalize these two things, the movement and motivation, it'll shortcut, I mean, 90% probably of our relational problems. So let's think about conflict. So now the question is, all right, in the midst of relational conflict, how do you deal with it? What's your normal disposition or response? You know, uh, people talk about how most people have like a conflict style, who some people enjoy conflict and they're kind of domineering and they, they like the powerful feeling of controlling, maybe bullying others. So we talk that they're afraid of conflict. So conflict is to be avoided at all costs. It's very uncomfortable for them. So they minimize it. They sidestep. They're avoiders. Some people are defenders. So anytime conflict comes, they are going to defend themselves regardless of what happens. Some are uh, appeasers where they try to justify themselves or others. Uh, but I think you kind of look at all the different kind of conflict styles. You can probably sum them up into two basic categories or two kind of basic movements of a movement where you're, you're going against. So it's, it's, it's an attack. So in conflict, you attack, fight or flight. You fight, and that's blaming, accusing, attacking, 
criticizing, demeaning. We kind of go on the attack. That's the opposite of the gain piece. Uh, Or you move away. You don't go. You don't enter in. You move away. You withdraw, become silent, shut down, dismiss, close up, ignore. I mean, in general, we'll either avoid or attack. So think about in your own life, like which which is your primary posture to conflict? Fight, flight, hide, or hit back, avoid, or attack. But here we see go and gain. It's actually neither of those things. So what is it? How do we do this? And one of the things I've been amazed as we've slowly worked through Matthew, how it can become a lens and a framework that seems to make sense of like everything else. So I know it gets tedious because all throughout all of the men's Bible studies for the last two years, every passage we look at, I always say with everyone, oh, this reminds me of something we've seen in Matthew. And you can see it when, uh, like last week, did you? it was amazing how Jesus's call to humility then gets echoed in Philippians chapter 2. We need some of our software developers. Like we need the book of Matthew where you can just double click on each phrases and then comes up the different sections in the Bible that is then illustrating this point and unpacking this point. So last week with Jesus in Philippians 2, humility. Here, I think this in uh, verse 15, what does it mean to, to go and try and gain your brother, you could double-click on this, and what comes up would be James 3 through 4. So in James 3 through 4, this is probably the classic text on how to engage with relational conflict, and how does God view these things. There's probably no more accurate and profound and thorough analysis of the dynamics of relational interaction than James 3 and 4. And one of the beautiful things, there's probably no more hopeful and condensed description of what peacemaking looks like than James chapter 3 and 4. So let's look at a couple snippets. Let's pull up a couple things here on the screen just to pull up and kind of think, all right, how does this teach us what it looks like to go in order to gain? And notice how James starts it off there in chapter 4. What causes, so pull up chapter 4, what causes quarrels? What causes squabblings? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I mean, isn't that the classic question? Why are you fighting? I mean, parents, how many times do you say that on a daily basis? Wait, wait, why are you fighting? What is the cause? What causes them? And then think about all the answers that we, they, give. What do we say when people ask, all right, what ca- what's causing the trouble at work in your neighborhood with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, with your siblings? What causes the fight? And you ask them, well, they stole my toy. They did this. I wanted that. Think about all the ways we frame what causes the fights. It's because the other person is a blockhead. It's because their hormones are raging or it's because their hormones are aging. It's the demon of anger in you. We have the aggression gene that's been hardwired into us by evolution or it's because your father used to act this way or it's because your core needs are not being met or it's because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or this is One of my favorite, when you see like a two-year-old being an utter two-year-old and throwing a tantrum because they're realizing that the world doesn't revolve around them and they don't like it. And so what do we say? We say, oh, I'm sorry, he didn't get his nap today. It's like, nap has almost nothing to do with it. What causes 
the quarrel among you. What does James say? It is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have? You're fighting because there's something you want and you're not getting it. In some sense, it's pretty simple. There's something you want and you're not getting. So think back to the last kind of relational squabble you had. What was the desire that you wanted and weren't getting? And you know, very often those desires aren't necessarily bad. It's not like you're desiring, I don't know, to, to at least I hope you're not like desiring to be the head of um, the mafia and not getting it, didn't get that promotion. Think about what's the desire you're not getting? So hypothetical situation, let's imagine uh, you working hard all week. You've been giving of yourself, loving, serving, working, trying to uh, do what you've been put here on earth to do. And then you get home on the weekend and all you want to do is rest. Now, rest is not a bad thing. God commands us to rest. But then maybe someone else in your life, they've been watching you work all week. They've been supporting you, encouraging you. And you get home and all they want is to not be ignored and want engagement. They want engagement. You want rest. What happens? Squabble. And what's, what's the desire? What legitimate desire for rest? Legitimate desire for emotional engagement, been watching you give to everyone else for so long. Isn't there anything left for your children and me? So emotional engagement, nothing wrong with that, been created for that. But both desires uh, are legitimate. And so what's happened? And then squabble comes, and then what happens? Now the question is, what direction to, do you move? Do you go in order to gain, to create relational repair? or withdrawal or attack? Do you become hyper aware of the offenses of the other, the unreasonableness of the other? Come hyper aware of the justification for yourself and begin to nurse the grievance? All I want is, it's not too much to ask. And then the conflict dynamic becomes we either attack or protect, attack, protect, this, the, this cycle. And you think about any combat has the two Categories of attack and protect. You have offensive weapons and defensive uh, armor. You have a sword and a shield. You go on offense or defense. So how do we then defend ourselves in relational combat? You defend yourself by avoidance, escapism, self-righteousness, self-pity, unhappiness, brooding, compensatory addictions, despair, rationalizations, literal, figurative, running away, all to protect. Or it can go on the offensive with anger, accusations, accusatory words, violence, blame, gossip, ingratitude, scowls, tone of voice. So either attack or defend. And one of the hard things about loving relationships is that the cross teaches us that you can't defend yourself and really sacrificially love others at the same time. So then the question is, all right, what do we do? How do we get on a path where the goal is not to silence the argument or the goal is not to conquer it and win, but the goal is to gain, is to enter in till we gain the relationship? 
And what strikes me here in James is how so, I don't even know what the right word is. I have written down unmodern, but that's not the right word. How strange, unmodern, un cliche, popular his solution to the conflict is. You know, when the best we can do in this world when we talk about conflict mitigation or resolution can talk about things like this. So this week, I listened to a podcast by a lady who, for the small fee of $20,000, she will come to your organization and help your organization uh, develop its own conflict mitigation strategies. And she's worked with Disney and Google and Apple and all of these. So, all right, give me, what's the best protocols that $20,000 can buy you? And here's, I mean, here's some of the things. You have to help clarify your expectations with people. Listen well and repeat back what you've heard. Phrase concerns and objections in non-condemnatory ways. Count to 10 before you voice your anger. Communicate respect for the person uh, and be very uh, mindful of your body language and how that's communicating. I mean, all of that's fine. All of that's good. You know, maybe, I don't know, $20,000 for counting to 10 before you voice your anger. There's nothing necessarily wrong with any of those strategies, and they might actually help you uh, relate better to people that you don't know that well. But this does not get to the heart about real relational engagement. And how do you bring about real relational closeness? I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. They're just kind of shallow, stand on alone. They don't go at the heart. Notice what James tells us. Go back to 3.17. And one since 3.17 kind of gives us this protocol for peacemaking. It's like, if you can get your heart here, everything else will be made right. That's why he talks about the wisdom from above. Is first of all, actually, before in 16, he's talking about where does jealousy and selfish ambition exist? And where that is, there's going to be disorder. There's going to be every vile practice, but the wisdom from above, that's what we need to be able to fight right, to have relational reconciliation. You need wisdom, but it has to come from above. And it's first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Or your translation might say not hypocritical. And just think, if you can get to the point, how do you know you're in a position where your desire is to gain the other person? It's, can you get to a place where this is what's marked you? You're marked by these things. First, you're pure. His wisdom is pure. So are you churning out mental and emotional or verbal pollution? Is that coming out? And you're probably not in a place where the goal is to gain them. And maybe if that's all bottled up in you, you might need to get that all out, but maybe not in their presence. Maybe get that all out before you go to gain. But it's first, it's pure. Uh, then next, notice it's peaceful. It's peaceful. You know, in one sense, there's going to be relational conflict, but relational conflict doesn't mean relational combat. So there can be a difference between conflict and uh, combat. And so it's peaceful, meaning you lay aside the warlike instruments. So we don't use weapons of mass accusation. We don't use defensiveness and aggression and criticism and manipulation and self-justification and the desire just to one-up and score points and put them in their place. 
Uh, we lay down the, the touchiness to offensive. We're not set off on a hair trigger. It's peaceful. And then notice that word is it's gentle. It's open to reason. I mean, is there any phrase that less describes the last three years I think we've experienced in our country than open to reason? It's reasonable. And that's, you know, people who are in conflict have a distorted view of themselves and others. They're not hearing, they're not seeing, they're not listening. That's why the key line in this is if they listen if the, or if they refuse to listen. That's the problem, a refusal to listen. See, in order to gain, you have to be reasonable where you're treating people fairly. You're representing them accurately and recognizably. Can you articulate what they've done, what they said, what their position in a way that they recognize themselves in it? Or are they being misrepresented? It's open to reason. And then it's full of mercy. I mean, what beautiful lines. Don't you want to be the type of person who's full of mercy? How often can you say you've been in a conflict scenario that was filled with mercy? I mean, so often what we're full of is we're full of anger, we're full of criticism, we're feisty, we're irritable. You know, mercy has a hard time growing in soil like that. So full of mercy. And then note the impartial shows no partiality. I mean, that... Other than by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit and God's transformative grace, that's impossible to do in conflict, where you're impartial, because we're always partial. We're always partial to ourself or our side. I mean, we always want to win. But have you ever been in scenarios where there was competition, but you didn't really care, in one sense, who won? This past week, for the first time, and I'm, I'm actually proud of myself that I'm vertical, because this past week, for the first time in probably four years, I went and played basketball. And I came home from it, and uh, Cynthia's first question normally when I ever come home from playing basketball, she says, all right, what's hurt? Like, do we need to call for the wheelchair? And so I'm, st I'm still standing. And uh, she said, how was it? I said, it was wonderful. <laughs> I loved it. And the reason why I loved it is because it's a part of a 40 and over league where every person in that room was only there for the joy of play and exercise. None of us had any delusions of grandeur. And it was wonderful. So I don't know if you've ever been in environments where there's just no delusions of grandeur and people are just happy to be there. It can be so wonderful. And that's this thing. It's they show no partiality where you can speak of your own sins without defensiveness and without self-condemnation. Both of those are important to health. And then you can speak of others without accusation. So no partiality, no hypocrisy or sincere. You know, one of the hardest things about our, our world is we live in a world that's trying to attack certain sins with the same sin. You can't cure a sin with that sin. There has to be no hypocrisy or sincerity. We accuse others of their harshness very harshly. We get angry at all the angry people, we get so haughty about all these proud people, gossip about all these gossips. And so you, you can't have racial or relational re reconciliation that way. Real love is acting for the good of another, and often real love is very unromantic. 
is doing these hard things. So, so what, what are some of the marks? How do you know you're growing? Or what are some of the marks that you're improving where you're willing to go, but you go in order to gain or to reconcile or come back together? Maybe one of the marks of growth in your life is that you, because uh, this whole section in James is about how you use your tongue, the words you say. So your words can be a really good uh, barometer or therm- thermometer about how you, you're, you're, you're growing. So maybe your words are that you keep silent instead of attacking. You keep your mouth shut when you used to just blurt out accusations. Or maybe a mark of growth in your life is now you stop keeping silent. You actually speak up when you normally would retreat. Or you speak up courageously when you used to be intimidated. Or maybe one of the marks is that you really try to start speaking accurately, abandoning the use of language like always and never. We're really trying in our house to to weed out those toxic weed words of always and never. You always leave your socks here. You always do this. You never. So you know that's not true. It's not always, it's not never, and they're rarely constructive. More often than not, they're destructive. So maybe growing in grace means you speak calmly rather than exploding. Or maybe growing in grace for you means you speak strongly instead of passively and timidly. You raise an issue you used to just swallow, or you overlook an offense you used to explode about. So how do we grow? How do we move? You know, conflict is not something to be avoided, and it's not something in one sense to be triumphed over. It's something that we should expect to see Christ at work in us. So rather than despairing or panic when it comes, we can be transformed so we learn how to give the gentle answer that turns away anger or replace harsh truth uh, or harsh words with true words. You know, this is why it's so important to do what Jesus has already told us, that we have to first get the log out of our own eye, and then we can see clearly to engage with one another. But then I don't have this verse up, but in James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, but he gives grace to the humble. And you think at the end of the day, what you need for this is you need grace. Because often the reason why the spark for the squabble was there something you wanted that you weren't getting? Rest, relational intimacy, and ultimately what we ultimately need is grace. We need his presence. I think that's why there's such a beautiful, powerful promise that when two or three gather in the midst of this context, in the middle of racial, uh, relational um, clashing, I am there with you. And so when you have your fresh fights, you can know, all right, here's the terrain. And when we can understand this, repentance can be less haphazard, and we don't need to stumble around trying to figure out how we navigate these things. We have a real clear system. We need to go, we need to enter in, but then we seek reconciliation to gain. So it said there's two basic movements that most of us experience in conflict. We either attack or we uh, withdraw. But the beauty of the gospel is it empowers us to do a third way, a third movement. But as we close and think about that, I just want you to think about one. Remember in the context of conflict, it is important to know that you're in dangerous ground. That's one of the reasons I think in Matthew where Jesus 
he gives them this incredible promise that whatever you bind on earth, you'll be bound in heaven. And this is related to the nature of the structure of the church and different things, but then promise to be there because it's, it's dangerous ground. Because if your brother sins against you, you have to go and you have to confront them and you're telling them their fault. Have you ever been confronted when someone was telling you your fault? How did that make you feel? And so it's, it's a dangerous time. But one of the reasons why it's dangerous is because we have to remember um, you're bringing an accusation against one of your brothers or one of your sisters. And remember, who's prim- who is primarily the accuser of the brethren? You know, it's dangerous because we're on dangerous ground because Satan's primary job is he accuses the brethren, sometimes truly, sometimes falsely. He's the adversary of our well-being. He's the unlawful bringer of accusations against us. He's the tyrant who uses these tools to destroy us and others. And when we do this in the manner that's not with the wisdom from above, it's not pure, that's not peaceful, that's not these things, we actually become an image bearer of the satanic accuser. You know, we are made to bear an image. And we will either bear Satan's image in accusation or we will bear God's image in reconciliation, but we will be image bearers. So we have to remember this is, this is dangerous territory and we have to remember it's hard. I think that's why Jesus promises his presence because there is no one who knows better how painful forgiveness can be than Christ himself. That's why he's promised to be there with us. So what's that third way? What's that movement like? It's a movement where we go, we move towards others in a Christ-like constructive way. The goal of redemptive conflict is to mutually engage, to move towards one another in a loving, self-giving way. What are some of the marks? It's marked about remembering who you are, who they are, responsiveness, an open-heartedness, a forgiving, uh, a seeking of forgiveness. Isn't it interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, He tells us every day you're going to have to pray that God will forgive you like you forgive others. That means that's a daily thing where we're going to need to get and then give forgiveness every single day. So we seek it. We believe the best in others. We affirm the good ways God is working in them, asking earnest questions with the goal of understanding, initiating, empathizing, preserving until reconciliation happens. So in other words, you kind of embody the fruits of the Spirit in the relationship. So there's a third way to move. And one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just tell you, all right, now go do this. Good luck. I'm here to cheer, cheer for you. He actually has done it for every single one of us. And he has come to us. And before he commands us to give forgiveness to others, he has actually commanded us to receive forgiveness from him. He's the one who saw all of his brothers and sisters sin against him and stepped out of heaven and made himself a servant and bore their penalty so a way could be made so they come back and enjoy fellowship at his table. And one of the reasons every week we celebrate communion is just our weekly reminder that we come as forgiven sinners to his table. And if he's invited us in, we then can be empowered and encouraged to invite others in. So he has come to us first. And before we can give it, we have to receive it. 
And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. And then he said, this cup, this cup represents the wine and the wine represents my blood that shed for the forgiveness of sins. This represents me coming to you to bring you back. So you take and receive and then be empowered to do the same to others. So Lord, we praise you for the gift of mercy. We praise you for the gift of forgiveness. We ask that you help us, help us to be the type of people who learn how to uh, fight right. I praise you that you put us in the world where in one sense conflict is inevitable, but uh, ultimate victory is also uh, promised and given and empowered by your spirit and through your words. So I ask that you help us. Now I pray for anyone here in this room and they, uh, they instantly recognized uh, a relationship that's been marked by conflict. I pray that you would empower them to know and have the wisdom from above to know how to uh, wisely seek that relational reconciliation. Help us to be the kind of people that are marked by all of these things. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.